My name is Steve. I am the lead pastor of Trailhead Church. Thanks for joining us this morning. Um, man, this is not how I planned to celebrate Easter with y'all. Just going to let you know, this, this was not it, man. Um, Easter is one of those, those celebrations that just, I'm, we need to be together, <laughs> right? I know we can't, but it's one of those times when, when we gather, you can just feel the energy, right? The, the gathered body of Christ singing the praise of the risen head. And so this morning, man, I am filled with joy at the resurrection of our Savior. And, and honestly, I am tasting a little bit of the sorrow of, of the season that we are not able to gather together. Uh, but I am thankful that even in a season of pandemic, um, we can leverage technology uh, to allow us to, to worship together. Listen, the church has celebrated the resurrection of Jesus since the first century, right? This, this, is, this is like the celebration. Man, the church hasn't missed it. In times of plenty and security, uh, the church celebrated the resurrection of Christ. And, and, and maybe even more in times of suffering and, and persecution and upheaval, People celebrated. The church celebrated. Listen, we live in anxious times. I've had a lot of conversations and, and um, you just pick up the edge, right? Part of it is, is we're all just getting a little bit weird, honestly, from, from having been sequestered from each other for so long. Um, solitude is good. Isolation is bad. And, uh, and many of us, honestly, have been a little isolated in, in, some, in making us some, a little bit weird, okay? Um, but, but beyond that, um, there's an anxiety, right? Our markets are, are upended. Our, our perception of security is threatened. Important events to us have been postponed um, or, or had to be restructured in ways that, that, that uh, honestly cost a, a good portion of the joy. There is a disease lurking, unseen, but ever-present. And schools are being canceled. Oh man, to the great disappointment of parents who are having to teach new math. Um, and honestly, to the great disappointment of seniors who, who are going to be missing their proms and, and, and their graduations. And Listen, for, for everything that causes us disappointment, the reason this is such an anxious time is, is that underlying each of these disappointments is an anxiety that it could, that it might get worse. This morning, what I would like to do is take a look at a simple command. It's a simple command to read. It's a simple command to hear. It is not a simple command to obey. And it was a command that was given uh, to, to Mary Magdalene and, and, and the other Mary, the two Marys who first visited uh, the tomb and were the first witnesses of the risen Christ. Fear not, for he is risen. What I want to do is highlight three reasons that this isn't just possible for us as believers, but it is in fact perfectly reasonable, even today. 
Today we're going to be looking at Matthew's account of the resurrection uh, morning. And so if you have a Bible, I would love for you to flip over to Matthew chapter 28. Matthew chapter 28. If you don't have a Bible handy, go ahead and grab your phone and, and, and just do a Google search for ESV Bible. They have a great online app and you'll be able to read along with us. But we're going over to Matthew chapter 28. And we're going to be reading verses 1 through 10 together. Matthew 28, verses 1 through 10. Now, after the Sabbath, toward the dawn of the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to see the tomb. And behold, there was a great earthquake. For an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning and his clothing white as snow. And for fear of him, the guards trembled and became like dead men. But the angel said to the women, Do not be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus, who was crucified. He is not here, for he is risen, as he said. Come, see the place where he lay. Then go quickly and tell his disciples that he has risen from the dead. And behold, he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him. See, I have told you. So they departed quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy and ran to tell his disciples. And behold, Jesus met them and said greetings. And they came up and took hold of his feet and worshiped him. And then Jesus said to them, do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee and there they will see me. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. I want to highlight three reasons in this text why it is in fact perfectly reasonable to obey this command. Fear not, for he has risen. The first is found in verses 1 and 2 and then down in verse 6. So rereading verses 1 and 2 and then jumping down to verse 6. Now after the Sabbath, toward the dawn of the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to see the tomb. So it's, it's before sunrise. Um, they're, they're going to see the tomb. Verse 2, And behold, there was a great earthquake, for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone and sat on it. Drop down to verse 6. And the angel speaking to them, and he says, He is not here, for he has risen. As he has said, Come and see the place where he lay. It's interesting when, when you consider this account. In fact, it's true of, of all the Gospels. When you read through the four Gospels, um, the angel rolls back the stone and then in verse 6 announces he's not here. Right? He rolls back the stone and then he announces he, he's not here. Right? What's clear to me as I look at this is that the stone was rolled away for the women's benefit, not for Jesus's. The stone was rolled away so that Mary Magdalene and the other Mary might be able to look in, not so that Jesus could get out. Jesus Jesus didn't need any help, y'all. Jesus had just defeated death, right? Right? A stone was not going to keep him in the tomb. Death had no power over him. Tim Keller has a great illustration that I think uh, makes this, this 
powerful. He asks a simple question. Who does a prison have power over? Who does a prison have power over? Well, obviously, a prison has power over a prisoner, right? A power, a prison has power over someone who is convicted of a crime. If, if I go to visit a prison, I can walk in, I can walk out. If I have special passes, I can, I can go into special areas. I can actually visit in the cells. But the prison has no power over me because I am, I am not convicted of a crime. The prison has power over the prisoner as long as he's serving his time. And when the prisoner has served his time, the prison loses its power over him. I think that's a really good illustration of what Jesus did and why the tomb simply could not hold him. Jesus on, on Thursday, of course, was, was betrayed uh, by Judas, abandoned by his disciples, handed over to the ruling authorities of the world and through a series of kangaroo courts was convicted of crimes he had never committed so that on Friday he was crucified. He was lifted up on a bloody cross uh, meant to both humiliate those who were crucified and be a, a witness to anybody else who might, who might transgress in a similar way. Uh, it was meant to strike fear and terror into the hearts of not only those that were crucified, but of those who witnessed it. Jesus was lifted up in crucifixion. He was killed. But the beautiful thing is that he wasn't killed for his sin, he was killed for ours. Right? He, he, wasn't, he, wasn't, he wasn't convicted because he himself had sinned. He instead went as our substitute. He went to that cross to take our penalty. Right? He, he wanted to serve our time. But unlike us, he could do it fully. He could completely pay the price. We we could never have paid the price we owed for our cosmic treason. We could have never atoned for the guilt of, of having betrayed the creational intent of mankind to bear the image of God and to image God in the rest of creation. We blasphemed God by rejecting Him and, and seeking to be equal to Him, to usurp Him and to unthrone Him, to live life on our terms and our ways. We could never pay for that price. Jesus, Jesus could and and Jesus did. Jesus defeated our greatest enemy by, by paying our greatest debt. He became our substitute in judgment so that we could be his partner in blessing. He was covered in our sin and paid its price so that we could be covered in his righteousness and receive its blessing. And when he had paid the price of our sin, Death no longer had authority over him. When he had paid the price of our sin, the, the, the price of sin is death. And when he had paid the price of our sin, death no longer had power over him. The stone was rolled away. Not to let Jesus out, but to let us in. The empty tomb is an invitation. The empty tomb is a, is, a, is a proclamation of his victory 
and an invitation to receive his righteousness by grace through faith. It's an invitation for us to enter that tomb like Mary and Mary. Come and see, come and step, follow him into the tomb and by faith receive the gift of righteousness. And when we do that, we enter that tomb and he takes our sin, covers us in his righteousness. And when we step out, we step out like him, covered in the very righteousness of resurrection. So the first reason we can obey this command, fear not, is because the tomb is empty. The tomb is empty. Our greatest debt has been paid, not by us, but by him. And, and the empty tomb is, is the receipt of the payment. The empty tomb is an invitation to receive that gift by grace. The empty tomb testifies to our souls that we can be made right with God. Not by what we do for God, but by what God has done for us in Christ. So the first reason, we can obey this command. Fear not, for he is risen. is because the empty tomb comforts our souls by communicating that our need is met. The second reason that we cannot be afraid is found in a single detail, a single interesting detail in verse 2. In verse 2, and, and behold, there was a great earthquake. So as they're walking in the darkness toward, toward the, uh, the tomb, there's a great earthquake. For an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone and sat on it. He sat on it. I mean, what, what a weird little detail. I don't know that I had ever noticed that before, but as I was sitting in the stacks this week and, and thinking about it, I'm like, huh. What does that tell you about the angel, right? That he, that he came and, well, the great earthquake rolled away the stone and, and, and sat on it, right? Was it because he was winded and needed a break? Was, was he just like up there, whoo, that stone was heavy? I, I don't think so. I don't, I don't think moving the stone was, was any problem for him. I, I think what it indicates is that he was at ease. That, that he was relaxed. He, maybe even enjoying himself. I don't know. He, sat, he rolled it and then sat on it. Right? I just picture him chilling out on top of this stone. Right? Kicking his legs. Um, smiling. I don't know. You know what he's not doing? He, he's not puffing himself up. Like I've seen a lot of a lot of pictures and, and, and a lot of times the angels are so solemn and scary and, and, and um you know he's he's sitting. He's not yelling, he's he's he just sat down on the rock. What's interesting to me is the way everyone responds to him. In verse four, it says, For fear of him, that is the angel, the guards trembled and became like dead men. For fear of him, the guards trembled. All right, so guards. All right, this, this, um, these aren't the Keystone Cops, right? This isn't Paul Blart uh, riding around on, on, his, on his, you know, little, little Segway. These guys were mercenaries. Roman guards were mercenaries. These weren't men who were afraid. These were men people were afraid 
of, right? And, and yet they respond with so much terror, they're like dead men, right? And in fact, the women themselves also, as, as they see the angel, become afraid, right? In verse 5, the angel looks to the women and says, Do not be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified. Don't, don't, don't be afraid, right? It's, it's an invitation, it's a command, but it's an invitation, right? Obviously, they were afraid. He's like, he's like, chill out, y'all. Chill out. Don't be afraid. I know why you're here, right? So what's interesting to me is the weird disconnect between the demeanor of the angel and the response of the people, the description of the angel and everyone's response to him, right? Now, now sure, 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 right? When you read verse 4, you find out that he's dressed all in white and that he's crazy bright, like, like a lightning strike. Okay, so yeah, I get that he's startling and, and I get that that's really unusual and I get that, that you're going to have some sort of visceral response to that. But, but there seems to be a calmness about him. He seems pretty chill to me. And this scene, I think, highlights what is a profound reality. Who do you think was more in tune with the reality of the situation? The angel or the people? Well, I think it was absolutely the angel, right? The, the angel was in tune with the reality of the situation. The people were not. And this is weirdly very comforting to me. Because it means that, that we're not very good at knowing what's truly comforting and what's truly terrifying. Our fear and safety radar is not calibrated correctly. We, we detect danger when, when we should be comforted in safety and we detect safety when, when we should be alert to danger. My first winter in Iowa, I'm talking way back in the 80s after I moved from California and I went to college uh, in Iowa, it was my first deep winter. I had never experienced anything like that. And, um, and Lauren and I, Lauren, my wife, and, and I were, were hanging out. She wasn't my wife at that point. We were just um, getting to know each other. But I remember we would go for walks out on, on the golf course behind the college. And there was a huge lake and it was all frozen over. And, and I was just... Uh, I'm kind of quick to act when I get excited. And so I got all excited and I just ran out onto the lake. And, um, and Lauren is standing on the side like, hey, 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 right? No, don't, don't, come back, right? I'm like, what? She's like, people die every year falling through the ice. Get, get back here. And, and so I come back. I'm like, whatever, whatever. So we just start throwing rocks and pretty soon one of the rocks goes through the ice. And I realized that the farther you go out, the, the thinner it gets. I was in real danger. And my radar was completely off. I, I thought I was perfectly safe. Later in the winter, we're walking again, and, and we came across a small pond on, on the, uh, the golf course. And this time, man, I was super careful. Like I was throwing rocks at it, and she was laughing at me. Um, because I didn't realize, right? We had been in the deep winter at this point for, for well over a month, man. That thing was frozen solid. I threw huge rocks on it. And so pretty soon, I was, I was jumping all over that thing. Listen, we tend to be filled with fear when, when we are 
least in control, or at least we perceive ourselves to be least in control. So if I, I don't feel like I'm in control of the loose ends, I don't feel like I'm in control of, of the variables, I, I don't feel like I'm, that's when I tend to be afraid. And, and I tend to be comforted and confident when I feel like I'm in control. When, when everything seems to be going in the direction I want it to go, when, when, when uh, you know, as the A-team says, I love it when a plan comes together, right? So, so when, when everything seems to be moving in, in, according to the flow chart of my life, A to B to C, I take comfort in that because it gives me the illusion of being in control. And, and here's the irony, y'all. We're never in control. If a season like this teaches us anything, it's that we're not in control. It's an illusion. Often, when we think we are in most control, we are in most danger. And often, when we sense the danger most keenly, we're the closest to the comfort of our security because our security doesn't come from us being in control. We never could be. Our comfort comes from God being in control, and He always is. The empty tomb helps recalibrate the radar of our hearts. The empty tomb helps us to to recalibrate the radar of fear and, and the radar of comfort so that we come to take comfort in His control and we stop being triggered in fear when we lose our perception of control. The angel looks at, at Mary and Mary and he says, quietly. He says gently, don't be afraid, for he is risen. You feel like you're out of control, but he's got it. You feel like, you feel like everything around you in your world right now is falling apart, but this is all part of God's plan. He is risen and you've never been safer the empty tomb invites us to trust God's estimation not ours of when we're safe and when we're not when you believe in Jesus you are made as secure as he is strong When you believe in Jesus, you are actually covered in his resurrection, glory, and righteousness. You are as secure as he is strong. He defeated sin and death. That's pretty secure. The third reason that it is perfectly reasonable for us to not be afraid in a season of fear can be found in verses 8 and 9. Verses 8 and 9. So they, that is Mary and Mary, departed quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy and ran to tell the disciples. And behold, Jesus met them and said greetings. And they came up and took hold of his feet and worshiped him. So as the women leave, having seen the empty tomb, right, they were invited in by the angel. He had rolled the stone away. He said, come on, come on, take a look where he lay. And, and they went with their own eyes and saw that, 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 it was, that it was empty. Leave. Now, I think it's interesting. They left with fear. The fear didn't go away, 
right? The fear didn't go away. But they also left with great joy. What I think is really cool here, the angel commanded them not to fear. But they still did. That's just so human to me. Um, that We don't just stop fearing. We don't, our, our, our radar isn't immediately reset to reality. It takes time for us to grow in faith and it is by faith that we come to see what is real and, 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 and is true, right? They left in fear. But simultaneously, they started experiencing great joy. Their hearts responded to the empty tomb. Their hearts responded to the good news. Their hearts responded as it started dawning on them that nothing was out of control. That this was, in fact, part of God's plan to redeem and restore. That while God allows suffering to occur... He will use that suffering for His glory and for our good. Starting with Jesus' life and, and, and working through ours, right? They, they left with fear, but there was a dawning of great joy. And it was that great joy that was going to give them the courage once again to hope. It was that great joy that was going to help realign their misaligned radars of of fear and threat, of security and comfort. What I think is really beautiful is this. In one sense, nothing had changed. And in another sense, everything had changed. Let me explain what I mean by that. Their their world had been upended at the end of, of what we call Holy Week, right? All of the hopes that they had on Palm Sunday had been dashed. So on Palm Sunday, last Sunday, we celebrated, right? The triumphal entry Sunday or Palm Sunday. Jesus rode into Jerusalem on on the back of a donkey. And and, and people came out from Jerusalem and laid down palm leaves on on the road while he rode in. And they were singing, Hosanna to God, God in the highest. This was a messianic psalm. They were singing, here comes the king coming into his kingdom. Our king has come to the city. And when He comes, He will deliver us into our hopes. He will free us from our fears. Specifically, they they hoped that He would end injustice. That He would establish the kingdom. That He would free Israel from the dominion of Rome. That they would no longer be under the heel of of Gentile domination. That, That once again, Israel would be the crowning jewel of authority in the kingdoms of man. They had hopes on Palm Sunday, and those hopes were dashed because Jesus on Friday was crucified. And to the Jews, according to the Old Testament, anyone hung on a tree is cursed. How could the Messiah be cursed by God? To to the Romans, every king is crowned with glory and honor, and yet that was the most humiliating form of death possible to mankind. How could the true king be humiliated? What they didn't understand was the humiliation, the curse, was part of God's plan. 
Because the Messiah had to become our substitute in judgment to become our hero in resurrection. Right? The women would have gone through this week with, with these high hopes, just like the rest of the disciples on Palm Sunday and through the early days of the week and then, and then the betrayal, everything was turned upside down and the crucifixion, their hopes were crushed and then on Silent Saturday, they, they sat in the confusion of what in the world happened. And now they're coming in their sorrow to mourn at the grave now that, now that the Sabbath day is over and they are returning to, to mourn at the, at the tomb. Here's the thing, you got, nothing's changed. They were still women in a culture that wouldn't take the witness or the authority of women seriously. A woman couldn't be a witness in the court of law, which I love that, that it's two women who are the first witnesses of the resurrection of Jesus. <laughs> you couldn't script that better. In, in a culture in which a woman's voice was completely silenced and she had absolutely no autonomous authority, they became the first witnesses and the authoritative witnesses. They were commissioned by, by the angel and Jesus himself to become the authoritative witnesses, but, but they still lived in a culture in which they had no autonomy, they had no authority, they, they, their voice was not honored. They were still Jews under the dominion of Rome. Israel had not been delivered from Gentile dominion or the abuses of it. They were still human with human frailties and weaknesses. If, if they had a virus, they still had a virus. Right? They, they still had bodies that were prone to weakness and, and ultimately to, to death. So, so in one sense, nothing has changed. But the tomb was empty. And because the tomb was empty, everything had changed. Because he had risen, everything had changed. If, if Jesus was raised from the dead, that means death is not final and does not have the last word. And that changes everything. If death isn't final, our greatest problem has already been solved. Because our greatest debt has already been paid. All of these lesser problems, and they are problems. All these lesser problems don't seem so great anymore. And we come to recognize that in the greater gift, we will also receive the lesser gifts. In the resurrection of Christ and the establishment of His kingdom, we will find the correction of all injustices and abuses of power. We, we will find the establishment of true glory and honor. We, we will see true, genuine creativity, productivity, and, 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 and human endeavor. In the greater gift comes all the lesser gifts with it. The empty tomb didn't change their temporal situations but it started to change something much more important. It started to change their hearts. They would now see every problem in life through the opening of the empty tomb. The hopes that they had on Palm Sunday died. But they had to die as all 
False hopes must die to create space for true hope. See, false hopes aren't bad things. And false hopes aren't in themselves bad hopes. So a false hope is, it can be a good thing for a promotion or a job or a vacation or a family or, or, a, or a gift or, or an experience, right? A false hope can be a hope for a good thing. It's just a misplaced hope because we overemphasize that hope. We, we try to anchor our ultimate goodness in that hope, our ultimate security in our hope, in that hope, our, our ultimate goodness ultimately. And that's why false hopes must die. It's not that we won't still receive often those gifts. It's that as we receive them, we no longer have our primary hope anchored in them. False hopes must die to create space for true hope. And it is in that process that God recalibrates our heart to what is truly glorious. See, they felt fear. They felt fear. But that fear was commingled with great joy. And as they processed and experienced that great joy, that fear was reduced and was minimized and ultimately would die in the face of the courage of genuine hope. God is at work in every trial. God is at work in every struggle. God is at work in every hope that seems to be dying. And he's at work to recalibrate our understanding of what is truly valuable so that we might value what is truly glorious. He will enlighten us so that we will be afraid of losing the right things and, and set our hopes on, on gaining those things that are worthy of our hope. And as we come to trust his power, we will see life as it really is. Jesus didn't solve their problems the way they thought they needed their problems to be solved, right? He didn't do that. He, he didn't solve their problems in the way they thought their problems needed to be solved. He did something better. He defeated death. And through his resurrection, He's going to set us free from all of these lesser hopes and all of these false securities. Again, it's not that those hopes aren't good things. But he's going to set us free from anchoring our ultimate good, our ultimate security on those lesser hopes. He's going to, he's going to free us into, into genuine trust in his character. Genuine rest in his power. Genuine joy in his life. And genuine hope in his kingdom. Listen, in a season like this, everyone's going to struggle. In a season like this, man, we all have hopes that are languishing and even dying. With things not turning out the way we expected them to be. But for followers of Christ... Every time a hope dies, it's an invitation to return to the empty tomb. To have your true hope renewed. And to have your anxiety and your fear quieted. To have your faith strengthened and to have your joy increased. 
Listen, there is no greater love than the love that God has given to us in Jesus. There's no greater security than being loved, and there's no greater security than being loved by an infinitely powerful, infinitely glorious God, right? And there's no greater love that God could express to us than giving us his son. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, right? Delivered him up to be crucified in our place as our, as our substitute that whoever should believe in him might not perish but have everlasting life. He, he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God in him. There is no greater love than God handing over his son to suffer the weight of our death that we might share in his resurrection glory. This simple truth of profound love has the power to completely change how you view all of life. When we see life out the door of the empty tomb, it recalibrates what we find scary. It recalibrates where we place our hope. It recalibrates how how we esteem and value all things in life. And it gives us the ability to go forward, sometimes with fear, but with great joy. If you haven't trusted in Christ, I invite you to do so this morning. God stands open, right? The, 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 The stone is rolled away. That means the invitation is wide open. The, the, the stone was rolled away not to let Jesus out, but to invite you in. And all you need to do is receive this gift of grace by trusting in Christ, right? It is by grace through faith. That very simply means that God extends it to us freely to be received in humility. And we, in humility, receive it by simply trusting in Christ instead of ourselves to save us and to make us right. And if you are a follower of Christ on this resurrection morning, I invite you to renew your wonder and your awe and your joy in your risen Savior. That your greatest debt has been paid. That your greatest problem has been solved. That your greatest blessing has already been given. Fear not, for he is risen. He is risen indeed. Let me pray for us, and then we are going to share communion together. Let's pray. Father, we, uh, we thank you. We thank you that you delivered your son over to death, that we might be delivered from death into life, that that we might be able to enter into that grave and in a sense die with Christ because he died for us and then to rise with Christ having been covered in his very righteousness. We thank you, Lord, for that love. We thank you, Lord, for the gift of that grace. And we thank you that we get to celebrate this morning, even though we're we're not physically together, we get to celebrate together our risen Savior and praise you and give thanks.